Good morning. As the kids make their way to the back, if you have your Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 14. <laughs> chapter 4. Woo. It's been a morning. All right. Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we talked about the importance of the church being unified. And I talked about, kind of gave the illustration that when the church is unified, it looks the way an orchestra sounds, playing a symphony just in perfect unison. Now let me ask you a question though. Have you ever heard an orchestra play where everyone was playing the same instrument? That wouldn't be very entertaining, would it? Right? You, you, you wouldn't have the different ranges of sound that come from the different kinds of instruments. You wouldn't feel all of the emotion that's expressed in the music from, from just one kind of instrument. And Paul knows that although we are one body, with one faith, in one family, this doesn't mean we're all going to look the same. Praise the Lord, right? We're not all going to be carbon copies of each other. Like these mass-produced robot clones, right? We're not going to be a church where everybody looks and acts and talks exactly the same. Paul realizes that because he realizes the diversity in which God has created us and has made us. And yet that does not distract from our unity. Instead, we are going to reflect the glorious diversity in which we are made. And this diversity is what makes the church exciting. And it should make it the opposite of monotonous. It shouldn't be a place where it's just like, oh, do, 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 do this, do this, do this, and we'll go home now. It's our diversity that makes us different. In addition to this diversity that Paul is going to be talking about, God is giving the church more gifts. I don't know if you've picked up on that, but man, <laughs> Ephesians is all about God giving. And, and, and we're going to see another gift that God is giving to accomplish the unity that Paul has just described in verses 1 through 5. There, there's some essential things that are part of God's overall plan for ruling and reigning and, and partnering with him in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth, there's some things that were needed that God gave us. This, this isn't, again, this is not an afterthought. This is part of the plan that God has for his church. The unity we're going to look at this morning, the unity that comes from our diversity in verses 7 through 16. And for those of you who are taking notes, I want to break this scripture into three pieces. Shocking, I know, for us to deal with this morning. In verses 7 through 10, Paul is going to explain the distribution of these gifts that he's talking about. So that's the first thing we're going to look at, the distribution of the gifts that he is giving us. And then second, in verse 11, we're going to look at the nature of the gifts. What, what exactly are they? So we're going to look at the nature in verse 11. 
And then finally, we're going to look at the, the function of the gifts. What, what's the purpose? What's the point? Where, what's the goal of these gifts that he's giving us? So we're going to look at the distribution, the nature, and the function of these gifts. Starting in verses 7 through 10, Paul writes this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, it's important to note a couple of things before we jump into this passage. As, as Paul is shifting us here in this section away from talking about our unity, our one faith, in, into our diversity, first, the, the way we know that there is a shift here is some wording changes. Paul shifts from using the second person plural, you, to the first person plural, we. So, so Paul is shifting away. He's, he's wanting to identify himself with the readers, that, that, that this is something he is a part of. So he starts out with the individual. Don't you know that you are part of one church? You are part of one faith. You are part of one baptism. But now he's going to talk about we, and this is where the diversity element comes in. Second, and I mentioned this briefly before, but notice the emphasis on giving. In verse 7, Christ gives according to the measure of his gift. In verse 8, he gives gifts to men. And then again in verse 11, he gave gifted people to the church. Paul finds the, the support for this ministry of giving in Psalm 68, which is the original context of what he is quoting here although he is changing it slightly based on the overall theme of Psalm 68 to help us to understand what happened when Christ ascended to the throne. Here he's applying the, the triumphal ascension of Christ described earlier when we looked at that in Ephesians 1, 23-23 because he saw in Jesus this, this exaltation, this, this further fulfillment of the triumph of God. And he says here that these hosts of captives that he led captive refers to the principalities and the powers, i.e. the demonic spirits, who were placed in subjection now to his rule. We see this also in Colossians 2.15 where it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. And some of you may be wondering, what, what is all this talk of dissension and ascension that Paul is mentioning here in this passage? Paul is referring here to the incarnation itself. This idea of the incarnation, in other words, God in the form of Jesus coming to earth, living as a, as a baby, as a humble child, growing up ministering, preaching, and then dying ultimately on a cross. You see, 
some people have this idea that Jesus was created at the point of conception in Mary. But I want you to understand, based on what Paul is saying, that's not true. Jesus descended from heaven, being co-eternally with God in heaven. He, he is not a created being. He is one and the same with God. And so Paul says that very plainly here, that he, he has descended down into the form of the man, Jesus Christ. But he existed before that. And then after his death, he then ascended back to where he came from. Jesus was not created inside of Mary by God. Jesus was eternally with God in heaven and descended down in human form and then back to heaven from which he originally came. Again, Paul has been talking and, and, and grouping things in a Trinitarian understanding of who God is. And, and listen, I, I, I will be the first to confess, I can't explain to you the mystery of the Trinity, because God isn't like us. You say, how, how can this one God be three? I don't know. He's not like me. I've met some people with multiple personality disorders. I don't think it's like that, right? But, but he's different than us. He is God. We are not. We are created in his image, but not exactly like him. Second, Paul goes on to talk about the nature of the gifts that are being given here in this passage. Verse 11 says, And he gave the apostles, the, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So Paul doesn't want any mystery about these gifts that are being given to you. I thought about this morning getting a, you know, some bows for me and Jamie to walk around with on top of our head to, to illustrate this point, so that we are gifts to you. I know it doesn't always feel that way, Right? But that's what Paul is saying, is that we are a gift to the church. We are a gift to what he is doing. These gifts are given as part of Jesus' overall purpose for which he ascended. Jesus' work of, of filling all things, right? That, that is the goal of what Jesus is doing. So Jesus gives the the church leaders to build up the body into its fullness as a key part of his ultimate goal of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth to reestablish his domain and rule of the cosmos. We see here a picture of going back to Genesis. God created Adam and Eve to rule over creation and bring it into submission. Of course, sin messed that up. But yet at the resurrection, we see Christ doing that very thing and partnering with who? Human beings. Some, some people, why, why do we need leaders? Why do we need all this stuff? They're just going to mess things up. We need them because Paul tells us we need them. That they are part of Jesus' plan for our growth and for the success of partnering with Jesus in this mission. 
And the glorious thing about this, folks, is it's not just for a handful of people. This is for all of us. We are all to be a part of what God is doing, as we're going to see in a couple verses. Because it is the church that will ultimately fulfill this goal through these gifted leaders that he is gifting. Not, not that they are gifted, like they're special, but they are gifted to you. They are gifted leaders to you. Calvin commentates on this verse, and I thought it was so good. He says, The Lord has therefore bound his church together with a knot that he foresaw would be the strongest means of keeping unity, while he entrusted to men the teaching of salvation and everlasting life in order that through their hands it might be communicated to the rest. We now see that God not only gives grace to people, as we saw in the previous chapters, but he also gives people to people. He gives people to people who are graced with the ability to teach one another. So then Paul lists out some of these people. First, he says the apostles. Now this we know were the 12 apostles specifically. Paul was added to that later on. And this office was to spread the doctrine of the gospel throughout the entire world, to, to plant churches, to erect the kingdom of Christ everywhere they went. One distinction about these apostles is they had no church. They, they weren't committed to one individual body. But the injunction to them is given to all, that, that everywhere they go, no matter what city, what country, what place, they would preach the gospel wherever they would go. Second, there are the prophets. I think the best way to define the word prophets is to mean distinguished interpreters of prophecies, who by a, a remarkable gift of revelation applied them to the subjects which they occasion, they had occasion to handle. In other words, the, these were the people that you would go to in the church that you would ask, what do the scriptures say? And, and they would take the scriptures and they would listen to you. And then they would guide you through and say, this is what God's word says about this subject. Helping you to make that godly decision that you needed to make. There is an, an element to this, and I don't want to downplay that, a, a gift of prophecy, of, of, of being able to know things. But, but that, that's a minor part of what the, the office of the prophet in the New Testament looks like. Third, there are the evangelists. These were closely allied in nature with the offices of the apostle. But these seem to, to hold an inferior rank, if you will. Timothy is a good example of this. He was an evangelist. There were others that, that Paul would quote, but not, not ever quote them as apostles, but other leaders in the church that were going from place to place and starting churches. 2 Timothy 4, 5 Timothy there is enjoined to do the work of an evangelist. Again, Paul mentions him along with himself in salutations to his epistles, but never giving him the title of apostle. Next, we have 
two things that are probably one thing. And, and I say that because of the way the grammar is. There's no definite article before both of these. It's pastor-teachers. But, but pastors, this is, this is the only place in the New Testament where the noun pastor is used. The word shepherd or pastor as a noun. All other times in the Bible, it is, it is something you're doing. It is a verb, right? You are pastoring people. You are shepherding people. This is the only place you find in Scripture where it's used as a title, as an office. These were most likely the, the elders and overseers referred to in the pastoral epistles. Um, Paul may have also in mind those who had the gift of administration. He talks about in other places like 1 Corinthians 12, 28. These are the ones who would rule. And, and again, pastors, difference between pastors and evangelists and apostles is pastors would be charged to a church. Now, that may be a group of smaller churches in a certain area, but, but it was, they had a specific group in which they were responsible for. One of the key differentiators between them and apostles and evangelists. He also mentions teachers, and teaching is an essential part of Pastoral ministry. I mean, it's appropriate that these two terms would go together. But not all teachers are pastors, though. Right? You, you, all pastors are teachers. That, that's a part of their job. That's part of what they're doing and teaching and explaining the good news of the gospel to people. But not all teachers necessarily are pastors. There, there are many of you who are gifted at teaching our children that, that every week you are in the back teaching our children. That doesn't make you a pastor, but it makes you a gifted teacher. That, that gift is something that is needed in the church. But again, all pastors must be teachers. And this is why, again, so many people see these two offices as one and the same. But I want to shift to kind of the, the more important part of this passage, the, the function of these gifts in the church. And I want to look at a couple of things. First, let's look at their, their purpose in verse 12. Their purpose is very specific, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Verse 12 consists of three prepositional phrases there. One, we've got, for the equipping of the saints. Second, for the work of ministry. And third, to the building up of the body of Christ. This, this passage is normally translated by taking the first and second phrases together as expressing one idea, meaning that God gifts leaders to the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That means all believers are the ones who do the work of ministry. And we, we've gotten this kind of flipped upside down on its head unfortunately, in most American churches. And there's this idea of, well, you're the hired guy. You're the paid guy. You're the gifted guy. So you're the one that's supposed to be doing all the ministry. You're the one that's supposed to be doing all the discipleship. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul says it is our job to train you to do all of the work of the ministry. It's not that we do none, but it's that we are given a specific task of training and raising up the church from babies to, to maturity. 
Why? So that they can be mature? No, so that you can go and do the work of ministry. Each and every one of you, God is inviting to be a part of what he's doing in this world. And he say, but God can't use me. I don't, I don't have all the... We need each and every one of you, according to Paul. Because once you are equipped to do so by the leaders that are gifted to you in verse 11, this is then naturally going to contribute to the building up of the body of Christ. This would make sense of both what verse 7 and 16 say, that, that all believers are not, not just a select few with special gifts should be doing the work of ministry. Everyone that claims to be a Christian should be busy doing the work of ministry. Now, let us look at, at each of these things that, that Paul is saying. First, there is the word equipping. And, and this word carries the idea to complete or restore or repair. It can even have the force of, of repairing or, or settling or setting, excuse me, a broken bone, mending that which has been damaged. So as, as a pastor, as a leader, as an apostle, as a whatever, their, their job is to be equipping you, to be completing you, to bringing you to perfect health, if you will, in Christ Jesus. So that then you can do, go do what the third word, or the second word says, ministry, which just means service. Serving the church. Not, not serving Dale, not serving Jamie, not serving a man, serving the church. When you do something in the body of Christ, you don't do it for us. You do it for Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. Now, he, he has given us as a gift to help administer the church, but, but you don't do it for us. You do it for him. Every time you come, those of you who are on the cleaning team, and you, you clean the church, you're, you're not cleaning the church for me. You're cleaning the church for the Lord. And we appreciate that. Those of you who serve in the kids' area, teaching our kids the, the, the basics of, of doctrinal Christianity, you don't do that for me. You do it for Jesus. He's equipping every single member of the body. Every person that does the smallest thing to, to hitting a button in the back. We need all of you. But even greater than those things is sharing the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world all around you. That, that's something every single one of us is called to if we're called Christians. You may never stand up in front of a crowd of 5,000, but that doesn't mean you can't talk to the one person that God sends your way. It doesn't mean that you can't help those who are in need. Paul wants all of us to be working in ministry and service. 
Then that word translated as building up, this is a standard Polinian term for edification, right? Now, I know many of you, this is not a word you probably regularly use outside of church. I've, I've, I used to fix computers, and I was in the offices of all these people, and I never heard people leave a meeting and go, oh, that was really edifying. I was, I was edified by that staff meeting. I really enjoyed that. Like, I really was built up by that. So, so I know when you hear words like edification, that, that can be kind of a, a churchy word, but it just simply means the, the instruction or improvement of a person morally or intellectually. That, that, that we're building up, that we're, we're helping to instruct or improve the person that is in front of us. The second, let's look at the goal. Verse 13 gives us the goal of these gifts that he is giving. Verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Paul, in this verse, gives us four goals of what this gift of leadership to the church is supposed to do. The first goal is these gifts are to operate until we all attain the unity of the faith. Are we there yet? Can I, can I quit yet? No, right? We, we, we still need this, right? But that goal of, of unity of faith is, is one of the things that, that Paul has given, or, or that Paul has said God has given leaders to the church for. Now, it's interesting, like I brought up last week, this unity, which according to verse, or chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, it already exists. And which, according to chapter 4, verse 3, must be diligently preserved. Now, here in verse 13, is still to be attained. So, so there's this, this element of, again, the theological reality that, that once we are in Christ, we are unified. That is true. But we have to actively live and work that out in our lives and in our church looking forward to the day in which it is attained by everyone. Also, whereas our one faith that was described in chapter 4, verse 5 as given, Paul here envisions that this full appropriation of the oneness of faith as something that lies in the future. It's, it's, It's not quite here yet fully. Paul has in mind a, a progressive movement among all believers toward the, the full experience and application of the objective truth of the Christian faith. Second, there's also a unity that consists, he says, in our knowledge of the Son of God. So the first goal is unity of the faith. The second goal is knowledge of the Son of God. We, we are together to increase our understanding and our enjoyment of what Paul described in chapter 3, verse 8, as the unsearchable riches of Christ. That, that he has gifted us leaders so that we would grow and learn in our love for Jesus and what he has done for us through the gospel. The many Spiritual gifts given to the church are designed to enable us all in unity 
to grow and deepen and expand and increase our knowledge of Jesus. Third, Paul tells us we are to be growing into a mature man. That, that we are no longer to be children. No longer to be babes. We, we, we need to grow up. And, and one of the ways in which God has designed the church is to send qualified leaders that will help train, instruct, help you to see what maturity looks like. And then finally, our standard of attainment, Paul gives us here, is the fullness of Christ. In other words, the, the complete expression of all that he is as God incarnate. The point is that the church is progressively being conformed to the perfect image of Jesus in all of his fullness. One person writing about this verse said, The glorified Christ provides the standard at which his people are to aim. The corporate Christ, i.e. the church, cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. There, there are times in your life, especially when you're younger and you're immature and you're, you're looking to a leader and going, man, I, I want to be like him. And that's not all bad. But you have to remember that, that they are a man or they are a woman and they are going to let you down, right? It's like some of you, 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 you grew up and you, you kind of idolized your parents and then all of a sudden you realized, whew, they're not, they're not perfect, right? And it's important for us to remember that and Paul wants us to remember that, that, that while you may have people that you look up to and, and people you attain to be like, Make sure the ultimate person you're trying to attain to, the ultimate person you're trying to attain to is Christ. Set, set your sights a little higher, Paul says. And finally, we see the result of the gifts that he has given the church. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together or joined and held together by every joint for which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here Paul mixes some metaphors and he draws upon some imagery of a body and anatomy. And we see that, that these metaphors are both individual and corporate. And he's showing us the, the proper use of spiritual gifts and the, the gifted persons that he gives to the church in the body of Christ. Paul teaches us that when the church is exercising the gifts, it will reduce spiritual immaturity in the body. In other words, when, when leadership is healthy and functioning the way in which God has intended it to function, people will be growing in their faith. 
There, there will be a moving away from being childlike to being more Christ-like. Paul uses the, the picture of a child contrasted with someone that has matured in the faith. And we are to imitate children in their humility and in their innocence, but not in their ignorance and their instability. It's so easy to divert children sometimes. And Paul is saying, you need to grow up and mature and not be distracted by all the flashy things, all the shiny things. You need to grow up in maturity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understanding it, applying it, living it every day of your life. For Paul, immaturity is evidenced in instability, lack of direction, doctrinal indecisiveness, and being susceptible to any kind of manipulation by a cunning speaker. His language is vivid here. He says that they are tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And most of us are, are not seafaring people, but for the, the people of Israel, this, this would have been something because the, the storms represented the chaos the, the uncontrollable. And so going out to sea was a dangerous thing for them. And so Paul has this picture of this tiny boat that's out there and all of a sudden the storm blows up and it just, it's got to go wherever the wind goes. It's completely at the mercy of the waves and the wind. Again, these, these were natural metaphors for these ancient people who, who were afraid of voyaging out into the sea. Immaturity is especially evident when believers are easily fooled by false teachers. And they always seem to embrace whatever new theological fad is being promoted. Every wind of teaching is, is kind of placed in contrast with unity of the faith in verse 13. In other words, at the, at the heart of childish immaturity is a lack of any kind of theological discernment. And three phrases here when, when then explain what lies behind such threatening teachings. He says, by the trickery of men. The word trickery literally referred to throwing the dice. Right? And so it's like these guys just get up and they're like, okay, let, let's see what we're going to talk about today. There, there's no consistency to what they're teaching or what they're doing. They just, they're just rolling the dice and seeing what pops up. And that's what they're going to talk about. One person commented on this saying that false teaching acts like a wary and dexterous gambler winning by dishonesty without being suspected of it in other words they're playing with loaded dice there's nothing divine about their teaching it's wholly human in origin second he says by craftiness this refers to the unscrupulous and deceitful way in which false teachers dupe the immature and the unsuspecting. Pragmatism and manipulation are often the two things used by false teachers the most. It's been interesting. I don't, I'm probably, well, I know there's a couple of you, but I find it interesting watching documentaries about cults. And, and the one I watched most recently was about a weight loss cult 
that mix weight loss in the gospel. And it's massive. It's crazy. Crazy. But, but again, there's this pragmatism of I want to look a certain way. And, and that person was able to take, I mean, some of you may have even grew up in churches that did the program. I, I know there were several here in Lake City that did the program. But, but over time, that, that leader kind of twisted it into something that was completely a cult and, and built a huge following, not, not only in their city, but all over the world. And, and I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, how, how could you be so duped? But you watch testimony after testimony and people say, it works. Look at me. I'm thin. Yeah, that's funny. So funny. Third, he says, in deceitful schemes. It's funny, the word scheming, we, we don't use that very much here. If we use it, it's in a negative light typically. Um, it was funny going to Africa and working with some of those African pastors, and they would have a scheme for evangelism and a scheme for discipleship. In the British use of that word, it just means a plan. It means you're organized. You're not haphazardly doing it. You, you're thinking this out. And Paul says that's the way false teachers work. They're, they're not haphazardly doing this. They, they have a plan. There is a method to their actions. Ephesians 6.11 is even going to say that of the devil. The schemes of the devil. And the word deceit here indicates that it is often difficult to detect until it's too late. But when the leadership in the church is working correctly, the church should be growing and continuing to grow in spiritual maturity. This maturity looks like being brought into the conformity of Jesus, the head of the body. Again, this doesn't mean that every one of us will look the same. It doesn't mean that every one of us will act the same. But it does mean that we will be being drawn into the conformity of Jesus Christ. The phrase there in verse 14, speaking the truth in love, Paul uses to contrast with the concluding words of verse 14. In other words, Paul isn't exhorting us to truthfulness in general or merely that we are to be kind when interacting verbally with one another. Rather, he is calling us to proclaim the doctrinal truth of Christianity or the faith over and against the errors of these false teachers. But to also do so in love. There's a lot of people who love to correct. But they don't often do it in a loving way. And Paul tells us to preach the truth. Proclaim the doctrinal truth of Christianity in love. Paul's concluding comments in verse 16 are focused on both the unity of the one body and the contribution of each individual believer in their growth. The words from whom there has the, the antecedent Christ, the head, indicating that, that no growth is possible apart from a living, vital, trusting union with him. 
I don't want you to leave here this morning thinking, okay, this is a checklist of things I need to do. These are things that you need to ask Christ to do through you, to empower you. Because if you're cut off from the source of life, you will wither and die. You, you may do it for a little while. But the moment things get hard, the moment things get tough, the moment the people you're helping walk away or go backwards, you'll be tempted to throw up your hands and quit. I want to draw your attention to a couple things as I close in verse 16. The word joined uses a word found in Ephesians 2.21 where Paul described the church as a building. The, the second phrase, held together, was used often in the context of reconciliation. One writer says, taken together, they underline forcefully that for the unified growth of the body, its members have to be involved in the process of continual mutual adjustment. There is a continuing reconciliation that is happening amongst the people in the church. All this is accomplished as a result of what every joint supplies, not just what the pastor or the elders supply. For us to be a unified church, it has to be more than a couple of people. It has to be each and every one of you. And each and every one of you has a gift of ministry that, that I don't have, that Jamie doesn't have. And without it, we are incomplete. We are not going to experience the unity that Paul is talking about here if we are not all working together in and through our giftedness in whatever measure Christ has given to you. The word joint here may be translated as a ligament, the idea of, of being that each individual believer, through the proper exercise of his or her gift and ministry, provides the necessary connections between the various parts of the body. And thereby it facilitates life and it imparts power throughout the entire church. Paul is using this very vivid picture. I don't know if you've ever studied anatomy, but, but the way the ligaments hold everything together. And you don't really notice them <laughs> until you hurt them. Then, then it's like, oh, I didn't realize that was there. Praise God for that. Please heal it. Right? They just kind of function there holding everything together. And Paul says that's a picture of what it looks like when, when every believer is doing ministry. They're, they're holding the body together. The emphasis is that each and every believer contributes. Right? He says, by every joint with which it is equipped. We need you all. In this way, the various parts of the body all contribute to the building up of the corporate church in love. The, the climatic, climactic stress on the role of love should not be missed in this section. One commentator said it like this, Love is the lifeblood of this body. 
And therefore, the ultimate criterion for the, the assessment of the church's growth will be how far it is characterized by love. Paul draws on the theme of Christian love throughout the epistle. Ephesians 1, 15, 3, 17, 5, 12. Because he recognizes that love as a central characteristic of God and of Christ. And of Christ. That this is a central picture of, of who God is, a central characteristic of who God is. That he is love. And because of that, it's essential that those united in Christ be united in love. The church community functions because we are all called to love, to be love contributors, not just love consumers. Let me say that again. We are called to be love contributors, not just love consumers. One of the saddest things for me sometimes is sitting down with people and they're telling me, you know, I just, I'm just not getting my needs met. Just not, I'm just not feeling the love. And I ask, well, who are you serving? Well, nobody. I'm waiting on people to come serve me. Folks, this isn't the church for you. Because that's not a church of God. In God's church, we are called to be love contributors. And what I've learned is I can't contribute more than I consume. In other words, the more God uses me to contribute love, the more I see it reciprocated. The more I see people appreciate what God is doing in their life through this church, through me. One of the things I love, love, love is to get a message from someone throughout the week. And they, they just say, hey, Dad, I just want you to let you know, man, this is what my small group did for me. This is how they loved me. This is how they cared for me. And, and, I, and I'm so overjoyed because I knew nothing about it. And you say, well, why would you be overjoyed about things you don't know? Because that means... God is doing the work of ministry through the people, not through the pastor. I, I get my fair share of helping people, but I want you all to be a part of that. I want you all to experience that. So if you're ever thinking, how can I encourage Dale? There's, there's a way you can encourage me. Send me a message, let me know. It's beautiful to see the church being the church. And to hearing people say, you know, I, I've grown so much because of these relationships. Whether it be small group, DNA, one-on-one. -on -one. Some, some people just one-on-one, -on -one, talking with people at work. It's encouraging to me because that means we're doing what Paul has called us to do and we are growing in the unity of God. The unity of Christ. Every spiritual community to which Christ will ever call us doesn't exist merely to serve us, but to be served by us out of mutual love.
We need each other's love if we're going to be the church. And practically what that means is don't sit back and wait for people to come to you. Get out of your seat and go to them. Love them. You, you don't know what kind of week they're having. It's easy to sit back there in a chair and go, well, nobody came and talked to me. I expected them to come and talk to me. But you don't know the week they had. You don't know what was going on in their life. And they, they barely made it here. But you getting up out of your chair and going and talking to them may be the most love they've experienced this week. Don't just be love consumers. Be love contributors. Let's pray. Father, thank you for first loving us. And Father, when we struggle to love others, I, I pray that you would help us to remember the love that you shared for us by sending your son allowing him to descend from his heavenly place to earth as a, as a baby to live the life that we could never live to complete the covenant that, that none of us could complete And that through his crucifixion bore the sin of each and every one of us. But Lord, then he ascended. <laughs> oh God, he ascended. And we thank you for that. So that he might be first of many as we put our faith and trust in what he has done for us on the cross, that we too might be called sons and daughters of God and experience the love that you have had for Jesus eternally in our lives for the rest of eternity. Father, now as we come and we partake in communion, God, I pray that we would be reminded of your sacrifice. As we take the bread and we remember your body that was broken for us and we dip it into the cup with the wine that represents your blood that was shed for us. That, Father, we would celebrate the love that you have shown us. And that that would make us love contributors, God, to everyone around us.
ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.